Let's pray together. Lord, in Sunday school, we were reminded you are the blessed and only sovereign who rules over all things. You are the King of kings and the Lord of lords. You alone possess immortality and live forever. You dwell in unapproachable light. To you be the honor and the eternal dominion. And so we desire to honor you this morning as our great God. And many of us are able to say you are our great Father in heaven because of your grace in Christ, that you have caused us to be born again into your family. We are now your children. We can call you Father and enjoy all the rights and privileges and care that a perfect father provides. And so we give you thanks this morning. I pray as we open your word and look at what you say about yourself, that you would give us a greater, deeper thankfulness for how you have made yourself known to us, what you are for us. I pray for anyone here who doesn't know you as their father. Lord, they're still outside looking in all this might sound very strange to them. Lord, would you do the miracle you did for us? They know you. Would you open their blind eyes so they might see their need for Jesus and put all their hope and trust in him alone? It's in his name we pray these things. Amen. Father's Day is an opportunity to practice Romans 13, 7. It says, render to all what is due them honor to whom honor is due. But we might have mixed feelings about such an occasion. All of us have or had imperfect fathers. All of us who are dads are very aware of the fact that we are not perfect fathers. And most of us know that the Bible talks about God as a father. But what kind of father is he? Our text for today tells us what God is like and how he treats his children. If you have your Bible, please turn with me to Psalm 103 as we continue our study of summer psalms. And we'll be focusing on verses 8 through 14 this morning. Let's start with verse 8. The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in loving kindness. Do you recognize that description of God's character? It's how God revealed himself to Moses in Exodus 34, but it's right after the epic failure of the golden calf. I think we forget the timing of that. There's this giant failure on the part of God's people to worship this idol. And Exodus 34 comes after that event. So let's look at these four statements about God in verse 8. First, the Lord is compassionate or the Lord is merciful. 
God has tender feelings toward and strong desire to help those in misery or distress. It is the opposite of being harsh or uncaring toward those in need. And we'll talk about that more when we get to verse 13, but for now it's worth noticing that it says the Lord is compassionate or the Lord is merciful. He doesn't just do acts of kindness to relieve people who are distressed. It is his very nature to be that way. Second, the Lord is gracious. God is kind to those who don't deserve it. He shows favor to those who deserve the opposite, namely his judgment because of sin. Remember one of my relatives telling me, the Old Testament God was really strict and really harsh with people who got out of line, but now he's different. And maybe you've heard that kind of thinking before. But besides the fact that the everlasting God does not change, right here in Psalm 103, as well as in Psalm 86 and Psalm 145, and a bunch of other Old Testament texts, it says, God is gracious to the guilty. He shows his kindness to those who deserve his wrath. Third, the Lord is slow to anger. Maybe you know someone who gets angry quickly. Doesn't take much for them to lose their temper. But God is not like that. He's patient with all the faults and flaws and failures of his people. He is slow to anger even when we are slow to learn. And fourth, the Lord is abounding in loving kindness or steadfast love. God loves his people with a consistent, committed love. He is always faithful to do what is best for his children. And his love is abundant. It overflows like a river when it's flooding. And it will never run out. Lamentations 3 says, the Lord's loving kindnesses never cease. He'll never stop loving his children. So just from verse 8, we can see that God is a compassionate, gracious, patient, loving father. And the rest of the paragraph expands on those characteristics by showing us how God deals with his children. Verse 9 and 10 tells us some ways God doesn't deal with us. Verse 9, he will not always strive with us, nor will he keep his anger forever. So strive means to contend or quarrel. If you have the word chide, it means to scold or voice disapproval. So unlike some parents who are always on their children's case and always finding fault with them, God is a perfectly wise father who knows exactly how much correction we need and when it is time to let up. He doesn't keep his anger forever and he doesn't hold a grudge against us. Verse 10, he has not dealt with us according to our sins, nor rewarded us according to our iniquities. Isn't that good news? <laughs> Where would we be if God dealt with us according to what our sins deserved? We'd all be in hell. That's what every one of us deserves if God were to treat us with strict justice. But as we discover in the New Testament, the reason God doesn't treat us the way we deserve is because he treated Jesus the way we deserve to be treated. God dealt with Jesus as though he was guilty of all our sins so that he could deal with us as if we had lived the perfect life Jesus had lived. 
But the good news is our sin is no longer the issue in how God deals with us. That's not the basis of how he treats us. It almost sounds too good to be true, but Romans 8.1 says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So that's off the table. God is not punishing us for our sins. And so to encourage us that we really can believe that God doesn't deal with us according to what we deserve for our sins, David uses three similes to illustrate the way God treats his children. First verse 11. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his loving kindness toward those who fear him. So how high are the heavens above the earth? They're not just a little bit higher. They're not just slightly above us. The heavens are at an immeasurable distance above the earth. And so David is saying, we can't even imagine how high the heavens are above us. And that's just a picture of how great God's love is for those who fear him, which means have an appropriate sense of reverent awe for him. Verse 12, as far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. Well, how far is the east from the west? This is Jerry Bridges. If you start due north at any point on earth, you would eventually cross over the North Pole and start going south. But that is not true when you go east or west. If you start going west and continue in that direction, you will always be going west. North and south meet at the North Pole, but east and west never meet. In a sense, they are at an infinite distance apart. So when God says he is removing our transgressions from us as far as the east is from the west, he is saying they have been removed an infinite distance from us. He is saying his forgiveness is total, complete, and unconditional. He's saying he is not keeping score with regard to our sins. He does not treat us as our sins deserve or repay us according to our iniquities. And then verse 13. Just as a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. So David assumes we know what that looks like. He assumes we have all seen a father showing compassion to one of his children. So if a dad is trying to teach his five-year-old to ride a bike, how does he respond when there's a big wipeout and the kid is crying and bleeding on the sidewalk? And this is an illustration that's drawn from real-life experience. <laughs> well, hopefully they're not going to say, do you see what you did wrong there? <laughs> you need to be more careful next time. You took that turn too sharply, and it's what happens. And hopefully not, oh, come on, that doesn't hurt. Just shake it off. We would hope a father would say, oh, I'm sorry that happened. Are you okay? Let's go get a Band-Aid to put on that scraped up arm of yours. We'd like to think that a father would show genuine compassion when his own young child is hurt. And that's David's point. 
If even imperfect fathers show compassion to their children, how much more does God, who is a perfect father, show compassion to his children? And then he adds a reason for why God deals with us like that. Verse 14, for or because he himself knows our frame. He is mindful that we are but dust. So God knows what we're made of because he's the one who made us in the first place. And when he made us, he did not make us out of steel or stone or something solid and strong. He remembers we are just dust. And so if you go back to the book of Genesis, chapter 2. Look at verse 7. Then the Lord God formed man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and man became a living being or a living soul. And then over in chapter 3, verse 19, God is announcing the curse after the fall and he says... Verse 19, by the sweat of your face you will eat bread till you return to the ground because from it you were taken. For you are dust and to dust you shall return. So how strong is dust? Sometimes I take a book off my shelf and there's some dust on it. I go, it's gone. Doesn't put up a fight doesn't resist, it doesn't like cling, and I have to blow more than once, it just, choo. and that's what God says we're made out of. And even though we sometimes forget we're not as strong as we think we are, God always remembers we're just dust. A father might say, he's just a toddler or she's just a little kid, so I don't expect them to be able to tie their own shoes or keep up the pace when we're taking a walk. I know it's too hard for them. And in a similar way, when God sees his children struggling or overwhelmed, <laughs> he basically says, they're just dust. I don't expect them to be able to handle life's challenges on their own. I know they need my grace in their weakness. There's something similar to verse 14 in Psalm 78, if you want to turn over to that. It's a little different, but it makes the same point. Psalm 78. This is recounting God's dealing with his people. It's a very long psalm. I just want to give a sample of how challenging they were and then how God responded. So pick it up in verse 6. And this is, the, the flow of the verses is that parents are part of a relay race of telling children about the works of God, and then those children will tell their children throughout the generations so that there's this ongoing information about God being passed on in families. And so in verse 6 he says, that the generation to come might know, even the children yet to be born that they may arise and tell them to their children. What's the goal? That they should put their confidence or their hope in God and not forget the works of God, 
but keep his commandments and not be like their fathers. What were their fathers like? A stubborn and rebellious generation, a generation that did not prepare its heart and whose spirit was not faithful to God. Verse 17, they still continue to sin against him, to rebel against the Most High in the desert. And in their heart, they put God to the test by asking food according to their desire. They spoke against God. They said, can God prepare a table in the wilderness? And then it goes on from there. God does judge on that. They kind of get their attention. But then in verse 37, it says, or 36, but they deceived him with their mouth. They lied with their tongue, for their heart was not steadfast toward him, nor were they faithful in his covenant. So how does God deal with such stubborn, rebellious, disobedient, demanding, complaining, unfaithful people? Look at verse 38 and 39. But he, being compassionate forgave their iniquity and did not destroy them. And often he restrained his anger and he did not arouse all his wrath. Thus he remembered that they were but flesh, a wind that passes and does not return. So you see the reasoning there? God's compassion and his forgiveness and his patience are all linked to the fact that God remembers their but flesh. They're just frail, fallen, weak human beings. And so he shows compassion. He didn't have to treat them that way. He could have just zapped them. They would have deserved it. He could have just zapped us. We would have deserved it. But he's compassionate. So David assumes... We all know what a compassionate father looks like. And he uses that as an illustration of God as our father. There's a couple other texts that make a similar comparison. So go to Proverbs 3. Proverbs chapter 3. Verse 11 and 12. And Solomon says, My son... Do not reject the discipline of the Lord or loathe his reproof. Why not? For whom the Lord loves, he reproves. Even as a father corrects the son in whom he delights. So Solomon assumes we have a category for a father who disciplines his children because he loves them. Not out of anger, not out of frustration, but out of love for that child he delights in. And he tells us that's how God deals with us. That's how God disciplines us. He does it out of love. And the author of Hebrews quotes that and then applies it in Hebrews 12. So I invite you to turn over to Hebrews 12. In verse 5, he says, you've forgotten Proverbs 3, <laughs> which is easy to do. You forgot that. He quotes it. And then starting in verse 9, we had earthly fathers to discipline us. 
and we respected them, shall we not much rather be subject to the father of spirits and live? For they, our earthly fathers, disciplined us for a short time as seemed best to them. But he, God, disciplines us for our good so that we may share his holiness. All discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful, but sorrowful. Yet, to those who have been trained by it, afterwards it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. Or think of what Jesus says in Matthew 7. Go to Matthew 7. Verse 9 through 11. Jesus is teaching about prayer. And in order to, well, let's just start in 7. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and he who seeks finds. Or to him who knocks, it will be opened. And now he's going to reinforce that. Or what man is there among you when his son asks for a loaf, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, he will not give him a snake, will he? And here's this conclusion. If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give what is good to those who ask him? So Jesus assumes even earthly fathers give good gifts to their children, and he draws the conclusion, how much more can we count on a perfect heavenly Father to give good gifts to his children? So here's a quote from John Piper. When you see a good father you are seeing a picture of God. Or to put it another way, God designed human fatherhood to be a portrait of himself. It is a portrayal of his own fatherhood, which means that the clear implication for all of us fathers is that we were designed to display the fatherhood of God, especially, but not only, to our children. And it implies that children learn what God's fatherhood is like largely by watching us. I'm going to repeat that last one. Our children will learn what God is like, what kind of father he is like, mostly by watching us. So before the service, one of the brothers said to me, go easy on us this morning. Referring to dads. Because a lot of Father's Day's messages are, you lazy bums of a dad, get going. And I'm not here to do that. For one thing, I'm a dad. <laughs> so I'd be like pointing at myself. So let me say this just in a very positive, encouraging, gentle way. To the extent, this is just addressed to dads. To the extent that we are compassionate fathers who lovingly discipline our kids and give them what's really good for them, we are helping our children have a more accurate view of who God is. That's all. That's all I'm going to say to the dads. Here's God, a perfect father. He has compassion. He disciplines in love. He gives good gifts. There it is. We'll help our children see God that way if that's what we are. And if we're 
saying the opposite of those things, we're sending a mixed message about what God is like. So as we close, a big question we each need to ask this morning is, is God my father? Don't just assume that he is. I grew up in a church that talked a lot about the fatherhood of God and the brotherhood of man, and I came away with the strong impression, well, um, pretty much everyone is God's child. But that is not the way the Bible talks about it. For example, listen to how Jesus responds to some very religious people who assumed that God was their father. Go to John chapter 8. John chapter 8. And we'll start in verse 39. He's in this discussion with the Jewish leaders. He said something they weren't excited about. They answered and said to him, Abraham is our father. Jesus said to them, If you are Abraham's children, do the deeds of Abraham. But as it is, you are seeking to kill me, a man who has told you the truth which I heard from God. This Abraham did not do. You are doing the deeds of your father. They said to him, We were not born of fornication. We have one father, God. Jesus said to them, If God were your father, you would love me. For I proceeded forth and have come from God, for I have not even come on my own initiative, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I am saying? It is because you cannot hear my word. You are of your father, the devil, and you want to do the desires of your father. So it's possible to claim God is your father and have the devil actually be your father. And then listen to John 1, verse 12 and 13. John 1, 12. But as many as received him, referring to Jesus, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. So notice it says, to become children of God, which means we do not start off children of God. Our first birth does not make us part of God's family. We need a second birth to be part of God's family. We need to be born of God. And so if God is showing you you don't belong to his family, first acknowledge, I have no right to be in God's family. I have sinned against him. I've rebelled against him. I forfeit any reason to think that he would welcome or accept me. And that includes all of us. Psalm 14. David writes, The Lord looked down from heaven upon the sons of men to see if there are any who understand, any who seek after God. They have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is no one who does good, not even one. So all of us are in the same boat. We're all corrupt. We're all far from God. And we can't do anything that would qualify ourselves to be in God's family or make up for our sins. Titus 3.5 says, He saved us not according to works we have done in righteousness, but according to His mercy. So it's not about 
our doing, our working, our trying, our efforts. It's all about his mercy. And so I turn from my waywardness, like the prodigal son that left the pig pen and went home. I turn from my waywardness, trust Christ alone to rescue me from sin and restore me to a relationship with God. I believe in his name and receive him as my merciful Savior and my rightful Lord. Peter said this in Acts 5, referring to Jesus. He is the one whom God exalted to his right hand as a prince and a Savior to grant repentance and forgiveness of sins. So that's found in Jesus. So turn to him. And for those who are in God's family because of his grace in Christ, Father's Day is a reminder to honor our Father. One way we do that is giving him thankful praise. That's how the psalm begins and ends. Verse 1, bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me, bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget none of his benefits. And then he lists a bunch of benefits. Then he has this paragraph about how God deals with his children. And then he ends with, bless the Lord, all you works of his, in all places of his dominion. Bless the Lord, O my soul. So that's one of the primary applications of how we honor our Father is we bless him, we honor him, we give him praise Psalm 50 says, he who offers a sacrifice of thanksgiving or offers a sacrifice of praise honors me. Psalm 29 calls us, ascribe to the Lord the glory due to his name. And so that's what we seek to do as we sing songs to God in corporate worship or as we have God-exalting thoughts in our hearts as we're hearing his word. That honors God. But I want to share another way we honor God and that is by trusting him as our father. And this was sparked by a conversation I had just last week with a brother from out of town. And I just thought it would fit with this message this morning. Uh, this dear brother is uh, angry at the doctors who are treating his wife. As far as he can tell, it seems they have misdiagnosed her condition. They put her on a medication that has done some serious damage to her liver. And he's understandably upset. It's like, they blew it. <laughs> I don't know if her liver is going to get better. And it's because these guys messed up. And he's mad. So we kept talking and he said something that I just want to read to you. Everything that comes to us is from a loving father who does all things well. I want to live in the reality of that and honor him by trusting him. It doesn't change that things are bad but it gives me a proper pair of glasses to see what's going on. I thought, that's honoring God. Doesn't make her liver better? Doesn't fix it? It's still bad, he says. But he wants to honor God by trusting him. Or as we sang earlier, remember singing this? When I am lost... When I am broken in the night of fear 
and doubt. Still, I will trust in my good Father and bow to the one, or yes, to the one great King, I bow. So let's pray. Lord, we want to honor you with our praises, with thankful hearts that you are such a merciful, patient father with us. Thank you for the mercy that brought us into your family in the first place when we were lost and undone and could do nothing to make things right. You brought us into your family by your grace in Christ. And Lord, thank you that you continue to love us, continue to give good gifts to us. You discipline us. You even ordain trials for our good. And Lord, we want to trust you in those. And I pray for anyone who's here who's um, still a stranger to these things, that even today they would put their hope and trust in Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen.